This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And this week we're talking about economic inequality in America, how it got to this point, and most importantly to this discussion, why? So sometime in the last couple of decades, these charts started to show up. I started to notice them in the early days of social media, I think. Maybe even further back to the burgeoning of the blog era. Anyway, they were charts that in a number of different ways showed a yawning and growing wealth gap in this country and a dip in social mobility, which is the data point that contains within it the American dream. There's a sense when you see data like that being spread far and wide that it'll be a catalyst for change. But that hasn't really happened. Through financial crisis and a series of political upheavals, the trend lines haven't really changed that much. Even right now, as Congress responds to major social pressures to intervene, the opposition to change remains strong. So what's going on? What is it about America that, despite its incredible wealth, prevents it from closing the gap? Heather McGee has a theory, which she puts forth in her book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. The problem, she says, is America's zero-sum theory of economic well-being. And the roots of that theory, she says, are found in racism. But the thing that makes McGee's take on this matter so compelling is how she manages to show, through some deep reporting and analysis, how this attitude affects more than the black and brown Americans it was built around, how it really affects all of us. In this conversation from the Crosscut Festival held this past May, McGee goes deep into her book with Michael Harriet, the senior writer for The Root, detailing how the anti-government sentiment that emerged in the wake of the civil rights movement changed the country and the lives of so many Americans. This conversation and all other conversations on the tech and economy track at the 2021 Crosscut Festival is sponsored by Comcast, which would like to share the following message. Comcast connects Washingtonians to moments that matter, helping their fellow residents stay connected to their families, workplaces, schools, entertainment, and their world through the internet. Comcast Washington is dedicated to serving their local neighbors and working with nonprofits, businesses, and cities to create equitable access to the internet and other technologies for communities statewide. Visit washington.comcast.com to learn more. I hope you enjoy the conversation. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Crosscut Festival. I'm Michael Harriet, and today we'll be talking with Heather McGee, the author of The Sum of Us, the book that I always wanted to exist, but I could never find anybody willing to write it. We finally have. So everyone, welcome Heather McGee. I love that. I mean, I, I mean that, is, that is really true, right? Right. So uh, years ago, I actually taught a class uh, that they allowed me cre to create called 
race as an economic construct. And there was like never you had to basically create your own material. And I wish this book had existed <laughs> then, but it exists now. So um and I'm and I'm really eager to get into it. But one thing I always like to start with, because I think it tells you a lot about people, is where are you from and how many, if any, sisters and brothers did you grow up with? <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Well, I'm, I'm a huge fan of yours. Thanks to the Crosscut Festival for bringing us together. I'm so excited for this conversation. Um, I grew up in Chicago uh, and I had two older, um, one older half brother and two younger half sisters. And so I'm like the oldest on, you know, on one, in one piece, cause it's like my dad this way and my mom this way, right? So I'm like the oldest of my dad's kids and I'm the youngest of my mom's kids and I'm also a middle kid. Um, so yeah. So you have it all, yeah. all the bad stuff. <laughs> and uh, so I'm, I'm really uh, ready to dig into the book. Uh, it is quite a work. Um, so what made you write it, uh, write the book and who did you write it for? You, obviously, Michael. Yeah, <laughs> besides you. Um, so I wrote the book out of uh, out of a similar sense of, of frustration that, um, you know, I'd been working for nearly 20 years in economic policy, uh, helping to build and then running a think tank called Demos, which focuses on inequality in our economy and our democracy. And as part of sort of the broad movement looking to advance solutions to inequality, we were doing what we're supposed to do, right? We were doing the statistical analysis, we were bringing the facts and evidence and you know, sort of policy modeling to the policymakers and hoping that in the face of rising inequality year after year, they were gonna sort of reverse course and do the right thing. Um, you know, raise wages, extend healthcare, cancel student debt, refund public college. Um, and they kept not doing it. Um, and there kept being something that was sort of an undercurrent that we didn't really have the sort of permission structure to fully name for most of my career in public policy. And we didn't really have a thorough understanding of exactly how it was impacting us. And so um, really this book was born out of a lot of conversations across the movement for social change, where I'd talk to environmentalists or I'd talk to labor unions or I'd talk to um, people who want to move universal childcare or universal healthcare. And there wasn't a coherent story for why it was so hard in our country, right? Why, as opposed to our more, more homogenous peer nations, we couldn't simply like do the basics for our people. Um, the opening line of the book is, do you ever wonder um, why it seems that it, we can't seem to have nice things in America? Um, and so I s ended up a year and a half into the Trump administration leaving my dream job running a think tank and setting out on a number of trips across the country from California to Maine and Mississippi and back again and talking to hundreds of people, kind of putting aside the, the knowledge that I had as someone who works in economic policy and a lawyer and picking up history books and, so, and talking to sociologists and public opinion and political science. And what I learned kind of early in my journey was that there's this zero sum concept to this idea that there's a, a fixed pie of rights and gains um, 
and progress for people of color has to come at white folks' expense. This is an idea that is held much more commonly by white people. It's a sort of lie that has been sold to white people generation after generation. Um, it's not as much held by us. We black and brown folks don't seem to think that progress for us has to come at white folks' expense, but it helped to explain why, despite all of the data, all of the research, we simply weren't able to make progress on really most of our biggest challenges in this in the era that I've been alive. Right. And I love the chapter on the zero-sum theory. Uh, it's, it's one of the things that I've harped on forever. And one of the things, first of all, who, who doesn't like pie and who doesn't want everybody to have pie? <laughs> but you know, one of the themes, I think, of this book is the interconnectedness of all of us, right? Like, you know, the, th the name of the book, the sum of all of us, right? Mm -hmm. And that, you know, when we invest in infrastructure in you know, all of the things to, to eliminate inequality, how it doesn't just affect the people who we send the money to, but it mm -hmm. comes back to us. And that's one of the things that, uh, that I thought was, first of all, incredible about the book. And I'd like you to talk about them in terms of how, first of all, it's not giving anybody something. It is, right. it, you know, you, you yeah. repeatedly refer, refer to it in the book as investing, right? right. How yeah. it is investing in a community that we're all a part of. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I was born in 1980, right? So I, I all the politics that I've ever known has been under this paradigm of, you know, sort of anti-government, really degrading and disdaining social spending, um, a lot of kind of demonization and racialization of poverty. Um, and that didn't used to be the case in the United States, first of all. That was, you know, of course, you write a book, there are so many surprises. That was one of the many surprises, um, was just how much the country and, and particularly white Americans had a totally different ethos and loved big government before the civil rights movement. We'll come back to that in a second. But, um, but the idea that because there's not an us and a them and we are in an interconnected society, um, what we do to ensure the security and economic freedom and dynamism of some part of our society redounds to the benefits, to the benefit of the rest of society, um, particularly those who currently don't have enough. Um, and for some, for most of my lifetime, the, the sort of political narrative has been um, rich people should always have more money, right, in terms of tax cuts, but poor people, you know, shouldn't have more money because they would like do something bad with it or something, I don't know, right? Rich people having more money is good for the economy, but working class people and people who are struggling to make ends meet uh, don't need any more money, don't deserve it, right? It's, it's really this expression of an underlying belief in a hierarchy of human value. Uh, and really that hierarchy of human value, of course, is quite racialized in the United States, um, it the zero-sum racial hierarchy was uh, a lie and a story and narrative created in order to justify our first economic model in society of stolen people and stolen land and stolen labor, and in order to lure most white Americans into choosing their race rather than their class. And that has been really the story ever since. 
And so when we think about the reason why I try to talk about public goods and investments and, you know, and again, I finished this book in November before, you know, the American Jobs Plan and Infrastructure Week became like a real thing that the president actually wanted to do. Um, you know, I see so many things as infrastructure because they are the 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 assets, the services, the goods that make all other economic work possible and make it better. Um, so whether that's care, right, which, you know, as Ai-jin Poo, the head of the National Domestic Workers always says, so beautifully, care is the work that makes all other work possible, or it is, you know, the ability to have a well-funded school or childcare or healthcare or, um, you know, like be able to keep the lights on when a storm comes through Texas, for example, you know, um, all of these examples. So how do you think that, why do you think, first of all, that it persists and how do you dismantle that zero sum thinking? Do you think it is with logic and economic uh, education or do you think, like, do you think the people who perpetuate this will, once they see the illogic of it, will give it up? Or do you think that it is fueled by race and race is the thing that perpetuates the mm -hmm. illogic? Mm -hmm. So um, I think the people that fuel it um, are the people who are selling this zero-sum idea for their own profit. I want to be very clear. I hope that throughout the book I'm I'm clear. I, I went to great pains to try to sort of distinguish, at least for the sake of kind of getting your arms around the concept, that everything we believe comes from a story we've been told. Mm -hmm. And that it has been in the narrow financial self-interest of a of, of very pretty tiny elite that has been responsible over history for over the course of history for promulgating this idea and broadcasting it, um, you know, through media, through politics, through the kind of communication that goes on by shaping laws to reflect this belief in a hierarchy of human value and, and zero sum, um, you know, and, and today it is very much being driven by a self-interested political elite that is, you know, sort of desperately trying, trying to maintain power when their economic ideology and their sort of social ideology is pretty bankrupt. And so that that is what we see, right? And now they've got, you know, huge media network, they've got, you know, social media, right? There are so many uh, tools at their disposal, but ultimately we're talking about people selling uh, the zero-sum lie for their own profit and then people you know a much larger group of people who are are buying it who are in many ways desperate enough to buy it are familiar enough with the story because it's been passed down generation after generation um but i think right now i think in terms of your question michael like what's going to make it stop please make it stop and when's it going to stop um i definitely don't think it's going to be a sort of um you know, benevolent surrender of, of, of a weapon that has been very, very successful for them over time. Um, I think it is going to be people, the much larger group of, you know, of white folks refusing to buy it because the cost is getting too high. Um, and it's not because they read my book. Um, it's because, and I like, you know, enumerate the costs 
it's because the country is breaking, right? It's because we are falling down and failing on the big challenges of our time. Everybody knows that we are divided. Everyone feels a certain degree of um, sort of anguish and shame around the state of the country, left, right, and center. And, you know, from a purely economic standpoint, the the economic benefit of the racial bargain, now 50 years into the inequality era, where we have four out of 10 adult workers not being paid enough to meet their basic needs, while 1% of the population owns as much wealth as the entire middle class, the economic benefit of the racial bargain is getting smaller and smaller. Like we've been trying it this way for 50 years and it's not working. And so the issues that I raise in the book, whether it's healthcare or the cost of college or the falling um, uh, power of labor and collective bargaining or our um, environmental degradation and our unwillingness to act on climate change are all examples of the cost of this underlying racism in our politics and our policymaking. So the, you mentioned this earlier, right? You, all, you said it wasn't always this way. And I wanted to you know, kind of pin down like what changed it? Because we saw the things that this kind of racialized economic policy, you know, the things that it created was given, you know, kind of given to them, you know, somewhere between 30, 1930s and the 1950s, right? Mm -hmm. And so, like, it wasn't that long ago. Like, their grandparents know yeah. how they got this stuff. Well, yeah. But but, so, but how, no, yeah. what I'm saying is, how did we get from there, right? Mm -hmm. Them believing that not just that they built it themselves, but to do it again is wrong. Like, like what? It's not just a kind of gradual uh, removal from that reality. It's the opposite. Like they believe the opposite of the thing right. that built the middle class. But it was really relatively just yesterday that yeah. they, we did that, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Michael, you're referring to basically the formula that helped to build the great American middle class, right? The, the greatest middle class the world had ever seen, which was a formula that um, the majority of white folks turned their backs on after the civil rights movement. And, and the way that I describe that in the book is through the central metaphor of uh, the drained public pool. And this recounts the story, actually, I, I go to um, your your neighbor town of Montgomery, um, but it happened all over the country. And I think it's really important for people to know it wasn't just the Jim Crow segregated South. This was happened in Ohio and New Jersey and Washington state. Um, the idea, so what happened was in the 1930s and 40s, we went on the uh, building boom in this country of grand resort style public swimming pools. Uh, and these were not the kind of swimming pools that I've ever known. They were like a thousand plus swimmers. They were public, they were, you know, big, big, a lot of WPA projects. Um, and they were reflective of a, a broader government ethos that it was the government's job to take care that an ever increasing standard of living in this country um, for 
for our people. And, you know, it was reflected in the New Deal, in the provision of Social Security, in, in the creation of wage and labor standards, in the massive subsidization of affordable housing, and then layering on top of that, the creation of, of federally backed and insured mortgages to make home ownership possible for uh, you know, white working class folks who never thought that they would be able to own that wealth building uh, piece of what would become the American dream um, through the GI Bill, which, you know, put a generation of, of returning veterans to college for free and, and more home ownership grants. And virtually all that I just described, as you know, Michael, was for whites only whether it was explicitly like in the in the housing subsidies, which, you know, said for Caucasians only, or it was race neutral, like the GI Bill was on its face, but then was filtered through segregated housing and higher education sectors, right? So left out um, tons of black veterans. And the pools were often segregated too. And when in the wake of Brown, Black families were finally able to, to sue and advocate and say, hey, those are our tax dollars. We want our kids to be able to swim too. Um, cities across the country decided to drain their public swimming pools rather than integrate them. They literally drained out the water, backed up truckloads of dirt, paved it over in Montgomery, Alabama, where I, I go in the book. Um, the central park there called Oak Park, they closed the pool, they sold off the animals in the zoo. They actually closed down the entire Parks and Recreation Department of the city uh, and kept it closed for a decade rather than integrate it. So we were in 1970 before Montgomery reopened its Parks and Recreation Department. And when they did that, they never rebuilt the pool. So I walked the grounds of this sort of big grassy expanse and there were like five people at the park, right? It was no longer the lifeblood of the community the way it had been. And I talk about the drained pool as obviously standing in for so much more, right? It's about what happened to public goods once they were uh, expanded to include public that white people didn't think was good, right? And what happened when public goods then became private costs and private amenities, right? With the swimming pools, you had white folks building, you know, backyard swimming pools and, and membership only private swim clubs. And of course that means a community lost out in something, you know, and then that's obviously been a big feature of the austerity of the inequality era. Um, it means black folks never got to swim in the public pools. It meant rich white folks, you know, had something that was all to themselves. Um, but, but I then trace the drained pool politics of austerity that is fueled by a logic of racial resentment a desire not to share across lines of race, to rather destroy something uh, that is sort of prized in our country rather than share it across all of these issues that really for me helped explain more than anything else that undercurrent that I was talking about, the way that it was so hard to make progress on the economic issues that should have been kind of no brainers um, and are no brainers in countries without our history and without our politics. And that metaphor from the of the drain pool is so perfect because, you know, on one hand, it, it shows how the withholding of resources, or in this case, just like fun, yeah. is <laughs> just happiness. I just don't want you to be happy. Yeah. Becomes an you know translates into policy, right? It becomes yeah. an economic thing that you are withholding. 
But, you know, one of the things that you talked about in the book is that you say that the civil rights idea was the civil rights movement in that respect was a victim of its own success, right? Because like when you look at Brown versus Board and they said, you know, we got desegregation, but it almost kind of fueled a more virulent racial mm-hmm. animus that was kind of kind of, you know, worse in in many respects because, you know, it, it led to the hoarding of these resources. Mm-hmm. And so, so, I, but I'd like for you to explain to the audience, like how you, why you said that the civil rights movement was kind of a victim of its own success. Um, so I'll say, I'll try a couple different ways. Well, one is this fact that like nearly knocked me off my chair when I read it. Um, in 1956 and 1960, uh, two thirds to 70% of white Americans believed that the government ought to guarantee a job for anyone who wanted one and a minimum level of income in the country. Nearly 70%. So for me, as someone who was like trying to get like, you know, a 12% increase in Pell Grants for her entire career. The idea that the vast majority of white people were just like, give all the money to everybody. You know, like it just, it's unthinkable, right? In our current politics. Um, But that was the case. And then between 1960 and 1964, this is a quadrennial survey, between 1960 and 1964, support for that idea, government guarantee of a job and minimum income cratered in half, nearly 70% to 35% and stayed low ever since. So first I thought maybe it was a mistake, like you just don't see that kind of a swing in, you know, in a a four-year survey like that. But then... um, you know, I started to piece it together, right? 1963, we have the March on Washington for jobs and freedom, which includes those two things as part of the economic demands. 1963 is the year that President Kennedy really associated himself with on media blitz around civil rights. And of course, we then know that his successor, Lyndon Johnson, would, after signing the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act, become the last Democrat to win the majority of the white vote for president. And really, Politically, um, once you know Nixon and the Southern strategy really began to understand that that's how they could reclaim power, and then Reagan sort of put it on steroids with the explicit anti-government layer of the racial resentment. Um, you had the shift, and you know, in some ways, I think the logic is is clear to me now, right? This sort of free market, anti-government ideology that we've, that I've certainly grown up as being the dominant um, political ideology of the day, um, you know, was telling white people that they could no longer trust the government, which had created their prosperity, government and labor unions. And I have a whole chapter about how white people sort of abandoned um, labor unions. Um, but government had gone from the enforcer of the racial hierarchy, right? It was government who was saying, you may not live here, you must live here. You know, like it was government. Government went from the enforcer of the racial hierarchy to the upender of the racial hierarchy in a pretty swift period of time and was a betrayal, right? 
I mean, it's, you know, I think part of writing and part of communicating is to is to do the thing where you put yourself in the shoes of people who you're trying to explain what they were thinking. It was like, you told me these people are so bad that I should not drink from the same water fountain as them, live in the same apartment building as them, go to the same school as them. And then now three years later, you're telling me that they are in fact our equals and we should share all these things with them. So that was a, a, a profound betrayal by government. And then the formula, the political formula that then said, so trust the market is really has been thought of as a, or has been sort of sold as a race neutral idea, right? In the free market, it's, it's, it's the content of your character. It's not about the color of your skin. But of course, what is the market if not for the people who have power in that market to, to shape it? And who are the people who have power in the market, right? It's, it's white men. And so it's a move from a government which was becoming increasingly accountable to a more diverse America into a place where you had this, a similar sort of old concentration of, of wealth and power as the white supremacist government. Um, and I'm forgetting what your question was. Did I answer it? No, you answered it. <laughs> One of the things I'm interested in, and this is just a theory of mine. Uh, yeah, yeah. Give me your is that, theory. Is this this idea of this this free market kind of skewed toward libertarianism in the past few years? But you know, like we see in the kind of fifties and the sixties, the emergence of this idea of the you know adherence to the free market and smaller government. And do you think that emergence? was that economic theory and this trickle-down idea emerged out of intellectual pursuit, or do you think it was manufactured mm. as like a cover story for what you just talked about, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we've seen, like, there was no backlash during the New Deal and doing all of this stuff in the 30s and the 40s, a little bit, but you know, this idea that the government was a separate thing from us, which you mm -hmm. greatly, which you perfectly lay out in the book, right? Mm -hmm. Like how we I think of the government is doing this versus like, that's our money, right? Mm -hmm. that, that didn't exist until, you know, you we saw it emerge in the 50s. Do you think that was a cover story that was created for this idea of racial resentment to fuel this political ideology? Or do you think it was... You know, so it's a it's a good question that um, you know I don't know the full answer to, but I'll I'll take a stab. I mean, the New Deal was fiercely opposed, right, by the same people who had brought us the Gilded Age that you know predated it, right? There was there was an uh, a plutocratic elite that thought it was socialism, right? Same rhetoric as today, um, and yet they couldn't sell that to the majority of white people because the majority of white people were like, this is the best thing that's ever happened. Shut the hell up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like right. we have, um, you know, this is it, right? This is the formula. And, you know, the economic expansion of the 1930s, 40s and 50s and the ways in which wages tracked productivity, you know, hand in glove, the way that you had ever increasing standards of living, the greatest middle class the world had ever seen, higher standards of living in the world, you know, like that that was that was the proof. And so you had white Americans, you know, 
basically there wasn't there wasn't they weren't buying it right the, I, I do think that this there was always a class of people who were trying to sell this idea they sold it and defeated universal health care for example um with that kind of socialist uh red baiting rhetoric um and you know saying that it was an affront to the american way of life um against harry truman but it just for the most part didn't work because I think there were enough business people who were on board, right? The sort of Fordist approach. And I think that was made possible by a lack of social distance between, you know, the white guy on the carpet and the white guy on the shop floor, right? I mean, there really was a sense that, you know, that was me. Um, and I think that the the extent of social distance that happened in an economy that was becoming more diverse, where you still had mostly white men in power and then more women and people of color and, and immigrants of color after 1965 and the Immigration Act, um, you know, filling the ranks of, of the working class, there became, it, a lot, that social distance allowed the space for the stereotypes, the belief in a hierarchy of human value. And we saw the suppression of, of, of the minimum wage and all of that, right? The minimum wage hit, hit you know, was at its highest um, right around that sort of fulcrum of, of the civil rights movement as well. So I think it's really about the receptivity. Um, I, you know, I first learned the story of how we got to the inequality era without race, right? It was, um, it was the Powell memo, right? It was, it was, um, which is a memo by a man who would be ju become Justice Powell, the Supreme Court, who sort of laid out a plan for a sort of conservative economic takeover of universities, uh, you know, sort of set the plan for what would become a lot of the, the right-wing infrastructure and a lot of the business lobbies sort of put into motion, all right, the 60s, this has gone too far. Um, we need to organize, like business needs to be as organized as these protesters were. Um, but there's not a lot of race, there's no race in the Powell memo, if I'm not mistaken, right? Um, uh, you know, I learned the the hows of what shifted in our economic policy: the tax cuts, the trade policies, right? The 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 shift in the way that we spend and invest, and all of that. The stagnation of the minimum wage, the assault on labor unions, like all of that. I learned the hows, but this journey to write the some of us helped me see the why, right? Why is it that? on pretty much all of these issues that we're talking about, white Americans are reliably 20 to 30 percentage points more economically conservative than our people of color. And that they, even in on issues where white folks are su more supportive of, um, not more than people of color, but are like, you know, 45, 55% supportive of an idea whether it's Medicare for all, right, which gets like forty-seven percent of of, of Republicans, um, benefit them more, right? Right. Um, white people are the largest group of the uninsured, right? White people are the largest group of people making under fifteen. White people are the majority of the country, right? So, um, and yet they still vote into power a party that has no interest in doing anything. Right. And um, is adamantly opposed to this agenda. So they vote into power um, reliably. Right. In, in every presidential election since since LBJ, they vote the Republican Party, um, which has become so conservative on economic issues that there's not 
they, it's not even reflective of of um, of the of the economic ideology of its of its own base. A couple other things I could talk to you about this all day. One of the things you you know you point out in the book is this idea of colorblindness and, and race mm -hmm. neutral policy, as if like you know as if the policy was always race neutral, right? Like I think, mm -hmm. you know, and there's this big debate now about critical race theory and how we should be teach. We shouldn't be teaching, you know, history through the lens of race as if we didn't right. all learn history through the lens of whiteness, oh, right? Yeah. And which is the same we, sh we could talk about with economic policy, but I want you to talk about the idea of colorblindness mm -hmm. and how it is almost counterproductive to the idea of equity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is an issue. Um, I have to say, like, like many things, you know, my, my now, you know, almost 15 year dialogue with um, my law school professor, Ian Hang Lopez has been very instructive. And I took a course, a seminar on colorblindness in, in law school from him. Um, so colorblindness, obviously, so it, that was like the moral language when I was growing up, right? To, the person who was like a really good person was colorblind. And the sense was, right, this is what the civil rights movement was aiming for, was that we would be judged by the content of our character, that, that race would no longer matter. Um, and what is wrong with colorblindness as used certainly as a, a legal reading of the constitution. I'll come back to that in a second. Like that is, that is, that is where it becomes the bluntest instrument against racial progress um, and has by the Supreme Court um, really ever since the mid 1980s. But even normatively, what ends up happening is that because you went from explicitly racist policymaking, right? Racism holding the pen as, you know, goods and services were distributed as, you know, economic power was distributed as, as, as wealth was built and encouraged and subsidized to really on a dime with the bare exception of affirmative action, which has never been as impactful as it is like in the popular imagination, right? Um, really turning on a dime to saying, okay, now we can't see race, which just meant that we can't see racism. Right, we can't see the ways in which race still shapes opportunity. That is the the, the effect of of colorblindness as as a strategy and as an ideology. And then at its worst, that's like at its best. Um, it sort of ill equips people to see what's really going on, see what time it is, to talk about identity, which is important to everybody. Right, right? Um, to have you know, the muscle to, to deal with racial difference and, and conflict and to be culturally competent and all of that, right? They're sort of like on an individual sort of normative moral level, colorblindness does not serve. And then as a reading of the constitution, what it has meant is that, um, and this is really where John Roberts is the most conservative and the most dangerous in the six, three court is the most dangerous to, you know, to, everything um, is is the read that the color the constitution is colorblind and so the constitution does not allow governments to recognize race even to ameliorate racial inequities right. so that is the logic for for cutting down for striking down 
um, actually Seattle is one of the one of the cities, right? right? Seattle and Louisville. Um, voluntary school integration by like nice white parents who wanted to come together across lines of race and make sure that their children um, benefited from the you know the great the great educational interest that is diversity um, because in order to create these systems to attract students across lines of race they had to recognize what race the students were and that was therefore in constitutionally impermissible right they basically hold up to the same level of scrutiny, policies to advance racial justice as policies um, and treat them like they were policies to segregate and discriminate and oppress. Um, so that's a problem. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think you explained it very well. You, I mean, basically, if you, like, they took the monster that they created and said, you know, we can't recognize race because people might be racist when they were the ones who were racist. We'll be back with more after this. Dreaming of a long-awaited vacation? Take your travels to the next level with Alaska Airlines. They're committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and fresh air every two to three minutes. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next-level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. Right. Uh, I think we need to get to some questions from the audience. Uh, one of the, <laughs> the viewers wanted to know that when it comes to important discussions like this, equity and equality. And this is one of the, actually one of my original questions. You know, we find it hard to disentangle them from socioeconomic status, right? We always talk about race in terms of poverty. Mm -hmm. So she wants, so this person wants to know what, how important is it to unlink or link these two things, right? Say a little bit more. Right, so, if we talk about, for instance, inequality, like any kind mm -hmm. of inequality, economic inequality, uh, the, let's let's talk about schools, for instance, right? Th you know, a lot of times we talk about these schools are unequal because just black communities are poorer, right? Right, and that's why, the you know, if you go to a school when you talk about the white community, you're talking about a wealthier group mm -hmm. of students, and that's why the inequality exists and they want to know how important is it to unlink or link these things link these economic and these social inequalities to poverty or are they more linked to race yeah so ultimately you know it's it's pretty difficult to unscramble the egg right so the creation of race itself as a concept the idea that the human race is subdivided and that there's a hierarchy of value within the human race was itself a political strategy to justify an economic model of mass exploitation right so you don't get it's the it's the greed that drives you create racism create race and racism um and then there are, there's, it's like kaleidoscopic, right? Like there's so many ways in which it's really difficult to disentangle um, race from class politically. 
um, because class has always been racially understood in the United States, right? I mean, whether it's, you know, Lyndon Johnson who said um, something like, and I'm paraphrasing, I should probably memorize this one. Um, you know, you convince the, the, the uh, lowest white man that he's, you know, higher than the highest black man and, and you know, he'll empty, you can pick his pocket, you, you can empty, he'll empty out all of his pocket for you, right? There's this sense in which that's the sort of like funny LBJism of it. But in the book, I talked to sociologists who have a name for it and it's called last place aversion, this idea that you're more concerned with your relative status than your absolute status. Of course, W.B. Du Bois called it, um, in, in Black Reconstruction, the psychological wages of whiteness, right? That that in, in his in his reading of, of the of the moment in the South, you know, white workers and black workers were were so you know had the same material conditions. Nobody owned anything, right? Um, and you know they were all sharecropping, and you know the the economies were um, the industries were deeply exploitative, and it was sort of a plantation economy. Uh, you know, basically through Jim Crow after Reconstruction as well, and um, and he said, but they 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 hate and fear each other because the oligarchy has offered these psychological wages of whiteness to white people um, by giving them a sense of esteem, um, you know, funding their schools slightly better you know, making sure that they can serve on juries and basically say, making them think that they are something like, can aspire to, are on the side of the upper class. And that that identity projection and that sort of relationship around racial identity is enough to beat any solidarity that they might have with the mass of black workers. And if they had, and in the moments of in history when they did, it was a force so powerful that it could, you know, bring down the whole system. And yet it was thwarted by this psychological wage instead of contesting for for better material wages. So it's really hard to to dis, you know disentangle race and class. Um, and you know, I, I also think, and then the flip side, I'll just say like one other way in which it, you know, sort of refracts together. It's that, um, you know, so often when we have these economic conversations about the minimum wage, about poverty, about childcare, about healthcare, white people read those, whether consciously or unconsciously, as being for the benefit of black and brown people. And so you've got a racialization of otherwise of an otherwise economic conversation, even though, as we said, white people are the majority of the uninsured and the impoverished, the majority of people who are aided by by anti-poverty programs. And you know, the list goes on and on. And yet media overrepresents black and brown faces, particularly black faces in poverty depictions. And there's just this sense that the people who for whom it's a group pathology, even though the majority of black people are not poor, but there is this stereotype, the people for whom it's a group pathology um, and a sort of inveterate condition, poverty are black people. And so poverty equates with blackness, which of course um, lowers many white people's willingness to do something about it. Great, so, uh, and I know this question uh, a few weeks ago, a proposal to pay reparations to the descendants of enslaved people made it to 
House committee vote for the first time. Uh, it's, it's been in, proposed since 1989. It seems like a tiny step, but do you think that reparations will ever be a reality? And is there anything that you feel that feels more tangible that might help the country embrace reparations? Mm, thank you. Um, so I have a few thoughts on this. One, um, you might think that because I'm saying racism has a cost for everyone, that I don't think there should be reparations, right? Because like everybody suffers from racism. And so, you know, the ledger is balanced, like net net, we're good, right? So obviously that's not um, what I communicate in the book. And I think in fact- I think um, you do though. I mean, I communicate in the book that, I don't communicate that the ledger is balanced, but I do communicate that it has a, a cost right. for everyone, that you can't have a system as pervasive as racism is in our society and have people feel like they can escape it, right? It is it is warped every system. But that doesn't mean that in every single instance, it's not hurting black and brown right. people worse, right? Um, so you can't avoid it, but um, the, the harms are concentrated or the harms are, the burdens are, are, are not equal. Um, I think that the zero sum reaction is what's making reparations hard for this country that so obviously needs them. Um, the the reaction is often, well, why do I have to pay? Why I'm I'm imitating white person here? Why do I have to pay? No, we 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 in this case we are the white people though. Like we are paid like nothing that white people will be paying. We won't pay. Like it's all of our money, right? This is what I'm saying, right? It's like this weird idea that it's a dollar out of you know, white person's pocket goes one more dollar to black person's pocket, right? Like it's going to be this like, you know, like everybody's get out, every white person's got to get out their checkbook, right? That is not what it's about. It's about our government, which is the actor that segregated America, the actor that set the policies in place for slavery and all of that, that has to pay. And that is the government that we all pay into, we all benefit from, right? I mean, and no other issues other, I mean, it's just, it's a strange thing where it's like, you know, why should this white person have to pay? And it's like, we're all paying. And actually, as you said at the beginning, Michael, the I see it as an investment. I see it as seed capital for the America that we're becoming. I see it as paying a down payment on like a house that can actually stand. Um, and, and I don't, I simply, um, I, I don't think it's a radical idea. I think um, there are two things that I think would help. One, in the conclusion of the book, help us get there. In the conclusion of the book, I talk about uh, a process that's underway in a bunch of different communities called Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation, which brings together stakeholders at a grassroots community level to sort of rewrite the community history, get on the same page about you know the real racial story of the community, um, build relationships among you know stakeholders, and then identify what is the vision for a Seattle, a Dallas, a Topeka that is with, free of this old belief in a hierarchy of human value? What would it really look like if we could just jettison that belief that no longer serves us and is costing us so much and then moves forward? And I think that that, I, I don't think that in our current politics, a sort of blue ribbon commission in Washington is gonna move the needle politically but I left the three years of being on the road to write the sum of us more certain than ever that organizing, like true deep relationship building and struggle with one another is, 
is the most transformational thing. And that's why I really love the truth, racial healing and transformation idea because it builds in some of the, the kind of you know, elements of, of real grassroots organizing and, and relationship building and common struggle. So I think that will be necessary to create the kind of social permission for it. Um, and I also think, you know, something like Senator Booker's, um, you know, baby bonds, right? Which is like something for everyone, but more for low wealth families and low wealth families are, you know, disproportionately um, black and the racial wealth divide is, you know, 15 cents on the dollar and a black college graduate has less wealth than a white high school dropout. And that's because of history showing up in your wallet. And just think about the transformative power of having twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars in your pocket, in your bank account, and just what that enables, and how much that was a gift to the white and soon-to-be white, you know, Americans in the middle of the last century, and how what what was done, and you know how many businesses were started, and you know, just how many, you know, how much innovation was created because of that. And I think we need to do that for everyone. Um, and certainly for the people who were by the force of law, deliberately excluded from those opportunities. Right. So you can see my, my like heat about reparations is really more about like 20th century wealth building exclusion than it is about slavery. I'm agnostic. Like I'm not like, it shouldn't be slavery. I think from here to equality, um, uh, Sandy Darity's book is um, uh, a great sort of practical, here's how it could be done with the 1850 census records. And right, I don't think it's impossible by any means, but I'm also just like, you know, we don't yeah. have to, we don't even have to go back that far to yeah. talk about what is owed. Look, I, I, I agree with you. One of the things that I've preached for years is that maybe, right, just the actual value of the money stolen from Black uh, taxpayers and given to white people in the New Deal and in the GI Bill, that might be like equivalent to all that money from 1778 or 1790 mm -hmm. till now, right? Like it mm -hmm. might be the equivalent, right? Mm -hmm. When you talk about all that money and that wealth building that they gave to white people that we pay for. Yeah. Um, but of course, we could talk about this all day. <laughs> um, unfortunately, we're our time is up. Uh, I want to thank you for a great conversation. I want to thank Crosscut for inviting us. Uh, and I want to thank you for writing this book. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks to Heather and Michael for the talk. And thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was engineered by Seth Halloran. The live recording was engineered by Rusty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. Anne Krisnovich and Mo Cloud managed our audience engagement. If you'd like to subscribe to Crosscut Talks, you can do just that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. And if you would like to support the work that we do at Crosscut, whether it's the live events we host every month or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com donate. 
Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.